Hey everyone, Justin here with Whitetail Theories Podcast. We're continuing our segment with Redmond Hunt uh, Trophy Rock. Um, We have Cameron and Drew here. They're ambassadors for Redmond Hunt. So guys, I wanted to do this segment uh, in comparison with the last segment because what better way to explain a product than people that use it every, you know, all season long um, on top of also the people who created it. So we got part one done, so we'll hit part two. Um, but tell me, guys, how do you guys utilize Trophy Rock and the other Redmond products uh, with your uh, outdoor adventures? Yeah, Justin, um, thank you for having both me and Drew on here. Um, we've been using Trophy Rock products for a long time, and it's pretty unique because uh, you, know, you heard part one from – Nate and Blake, and again, we work very, very close with those two guys, and and their their experience is going to be more towards the product itself and the make of the product and the history of the product, and uh, that's great to hear that kind of information. But a lot of people also want to know, well, what about the end user? What about us? How how would it benefit us in general? And the neat thing is, is me and Drew both. Uh, there's uh, you know we got a couple of our guys that hunt with us in our in our group, but. You know, we hunt multiple states, everywhere from Alabama to West Virginia, Ohio, Kentucky, North Carolina, and here eventually Iowa. And what we're seeing is that in each state, your minerals impact your whitetail herd differently in each state. And um, and here, mainly um, North Carolina, for example, you know, it's very crucial not only just for horn growth, uh, it's also very crucial just for the the benefit uh, benefit of herd health. And um, you know, you heard Nate and Blake talk about all the uh, makeup of the trophy rock with those uh, minerals that you know, not just one mineral in general, not just salt alone. There's multiple minerals, and uh, it, we've definitely seen it impact our herd health in multiple states. I mean, Drew, what do you think? I mean, you've you've been in Ohio longer than I have. What do you see up there? Yeah, I mean, no doubt. I mean, it's it's awesome being able to run trail cameras for years on progression and be able to see, you know, this deer put on 20 inches, this deer put on 25. And I definitely think, you know, as we have continued to use this longer and longer, that we're definitely seeing that that jump from year to year become more and more as, you know, the deer get more accustomed to coming into that mineral site. Um, I highly recommend, you know, using the same mineral site each year because you get that hurt getting used to it. Like they were saying earlier, and you get all the trails coming into that one location and it just becomes engraved in the deer from the time you know they're one years old they're coming to the site every summer every spring and it's helping the entire herd and uh you know one thing kind of piggybacking off that and, and jury can kind of attest to this is we've always learned that you know we, we didn't just you know grow up and uh, start out being you know good at what we do I and mean, we were very fortunate to kill a lot of a lot of mature whitetail and it's and i don't see it stopping anytime soon and it's a very blessing for us but one of the biggest things is you 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 kill them now um your your january to your june months uh this this is the time where you actually kill those mature whitetail you don't wait until september through december to make those harvests i mean you know a blind squirrel will find a nut every now and then and, and get lucky but right. if you're going to be consistent with killing mature whitetail these steps are very crucial through this time period of the year i mean january to june that is crucial for uh, being successful in the upcoming season. Now, why would you say uh, that is just because of the management of it or the scouting? Uh, what would you, could you share with our listeners of why that's so important? Yes. Yeah, so I'm going to go off on a little tangent on the story here, but it'll yeah, kind of explain. What Sto- hey, that's um, why we call it white tail theories podcast. Definitely throw a good story. in. 
Yeah. Okay, so two seasons ago, I had a really wide eight point. Um, he was a three-year-old. I wasn't going to shoot him, but he was definitely one. You know, you could see this deer next year was going to be top of the list. Um, and I passed him multiple times. I basically had his bedding area completely locked down. I could get a picture of him whenever I wanted to. Um, come about end of November, he actually ventured onto the neighbor's property, and they shot and missed him. And they walked through the entire bedding area. I'm assuming they jumped him up or whatever. But after that time, I never got a picture of him the rest of the season. Um, fast forward to this past spring, I'm still running minerals in the same location. And the only time I could get pictures of him was coming to the mineral lick. And as they were explaining earlier, you know, the big difference between what a trophy rock is versus your bait sites is the deer use these minerals as needed. So whereas a bait site, they may come hit every single day, a mineral site, they may hit once every four days, once every five days. But that was the only way I could get pictures of this deer. And about once every five days, I would get a picture and I could run cameras anywhere else on my property where this deer had, had been at for, as a two-year-old and as a three-year-old. And I could never find him again. But throughout the entire summer, every five days, I would get a picture of him on the mineral licks. And to this day, I still don't know where he's moved to, but that was the only reason that I knew that deer was still living after the season two, two years ago. Yeah. So if you are, if pretty much, it sounds like if you didn't have a rock out there or a mineral site, you know, you might not have even known that deer was still alive. You might've honestly gave up hope on him. Exactly. And that's, to me, that's a big stress point of why we want to keep using those sites the same each year, because I fully believe, you know, cause I'm running nine, 10 cameras on this property that that deer had moved off my property after they had stomped the bedding area trying to find him and, you know, shot and missed at him. Um, but since he had grown accustomed to every single spring and summer, this is my mineral site. I'm going to go hit that. He was traveling back in hitting the minerals as needed and then going back to his new location again. Well, there's definitely something that he needs, it sounds like, that's in that rock. And, and you know, I've, I've heard this point uh, thrown around from you guys and, and from them and from other people. You know, I've went through some comments, um, things like that when I was doing my research. And, you know, it sounds like to me, like, these animals, like, a lot of us give them credit, but a lot of people don't. But these animals are not dumb. The, you know, these animals are not... You know, they know what their body needs. It, it, even if it's not about intelligence, it's about just knowing what they need to survive. They're already, you know, some of the most, just the, the stuff that white-tailed deer go through um, and they'll still live. I and mean, we've all seen the photos of, of legs, you know, or hit by cars and, and all kinds of stuff. And I mean, is if their heart's still pumping, they're nine times out of ten going to live. Um, but I, I really like, and it seems like it's driving home for me, that he's not coming there for fun. Like he's not coming there, you know, like he would a corn pile or something. He's, he's coming there because there's something there he wants. He, and he knows that, Hey, even though I haven't been seen anywhere else on the property, that site has what I need and I have to continue going to it. And I really like that because, you know, we've all heard those white tails people have chased, you know, those mature white tails where they get stumped. Like you said, Hey, he got shot at, you know, for all, you know, he don't went three counties over, but in reality, he's just hiding a little harder, you know? Still got to come out and get what he needs. Yeah, and, and that's intriguing because, um, you know, just kind of going off of, you know, using the same mineral site, too, and then to Drew's point off his story, it's 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 like it's been in, ingrained in that deer's mind that, you know, even though he's been harmed, he still knows where he needs to go to get his certain nutrition that he needs. And, and one of the big things about using the same mineral site location year after year after year is my father used to tell me all the time, 
Um, think about it. Somebody went into your bedroom at night and played something different in your room, and you come walking in that afternoon, you're going to notice it. You're going to notice something has changed. You might not be able to place it right away, but something has changed. And the same thing goes with using the same mineral sites year after year after year, because if you start messing with it and moving different locations and and being around it all the time, well, they're going to they're going to smarten up. They're going to know. Now, now you're younger age deer from two and a half and, and, and below. They, they might not you know care about it as much. But if you're trying to, again, consistently harvest mature white-tailed deer, you've got the key to the script. And that script is always going to be your best friend, no matter what this situation is. No, that that makes sense. I mean, it, it goes back to to you can use that form with anything. I mean, you know, before there was, uh, you know, when people would ride four wheelers to a stand or something, the deer can hear that four wheeler start up and shut off at that stand. Like, you can kill those one, two, maybe even three year olds. But when you start going after those big dogs and big mature whitetails, uh, you know, nine times out of ten, they they know they're gonna know if you move that rock and 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 you're having different sights and they see you walking all over the property, moving things around. It's it's gonna definitely make them weary. I mean, they don't get mature, you know, just just because you know it it takes a lot of a lot of street smarts, a lot of uh, survival skills, uh, a lot of being able to avoid predators to do that. And, and uh, a lot of people call that the, the chess match, and that word is used very lightly because, in all honesty, that is exactly what it is to harvest a mature whitetail. It is a chess match. Oh, for sure. And anyone that's chased a, a mature whitetail, I mean, don't get me wrong, like you said, you know, sometimes a blind squirrel finds a nut. You know, we've all been, if you've been hunting long enough and consistently, we've all been to that point where you might have been given a, a freebie or something was a little easier, but then we always end up getting humbled or striking out or, you know, I'm sure when that neighbor or hunter missed that deer, I'm sure he was sick to his stomach. So, um, you know, it, it's one of those things where it's... uh. Uh, it's definitely good to observe what's going on and, and really evolve as they evolve. And I just like the consistency of the mineral side because that's something anyone can do. You don't need to be out there every day uh, moving things around and, and doing things. Put it out there, drop a camera, call it a day, keep track of what's going on. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. A now, big point for me is, Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, go ahead, brother. I think it's really beneficial when you can put a camera out and not have to disturb an area for an extended period of time. So, like, for instance, when we just ran our minerals in Kentucky, we made – how we do them is we typically dig, you know, a slight slight hole in the – like a crater in the ground. We would go a bag of the 465 that he was discussing and then a trophy rock on top. Um, tends to see the 465 will get that dirt, the good mineral texture to it, and then the rock lasts up to about three months from my experience. And – you can put a camera on that, and we live in North Carolina, so we're eight hours away. You know, we can leave a camera for three months, go back, check it, refresh, and instead of going in and checking camera every week, you know, bumping deer, disturbing anything, you can leave that camera and get intel for three months straight. Yeah, it sounds like good, consistent info, too, not just rando stuff. You know, it, you know, like you said, with him disappearing, okay, you don't see him anywhere else. You see him with your mineral camera. I mean, that really... That really helps that chess match there for sure because at the end of the day, he, he's trying to survive and it's almost who wants it more at that point. Yep, and it's interesting to see if you start paying attention to your different areas. Like, for instance, I was saying that deer that I was telling the story about, it was about every five days is when he would hit, when he would feel like he need, needed minerals and would come in. But 
when we run our trophy rocks in West Virginia, it seems to be a little more frequently. Um, I don't know if it's because they have less minerals in the soil and things like that there. Um, but you know, every three days there in Ohio, it seems like it's more of an ag, ag atmosphere out there. So it's less frequently, but you still get those deer at some point. They feel like they need the minerals. So they come and hit them. Now, are you guys pretty consistent too with like what the uh, other guys in service side had said and, and then also uh, what uh, Nate and Blake said? Do you feel like that spring and the summer is usually a really good time that they like? Yeah, no, absolutely. I and mean, this is the most crucial time of the year to be able to uh, not only register what your herd has, but also pour them. I like to call them steroids. I mean, that pretty much, that salt and all those minerals that is involved in that one rock right. is pretty much injecting the steroids into that horn growth. And not only the horns alone, but the actual deer health in, in general as a whole. And quite frankly, Nate and Blake hit it on the head. Um, you're not going to get that activity in the fall. That's just not what they're after no more. They're after raw protein source in the fall compared to raw mineral source in the early spring and summer months. So you're not going to get that in the fall. Yeah, spring, summer, and December. I think, I honestly think the last two weeks of the deer season are the most overlooked two weeks of the entire year. Um, you know, typically people hunt the rut. If they're not tagged out by then, they start getting burnt out for those two weeks following when it starts to get that dead period where the the deer are kind of traveling at night, you know, every the rut's winded down and now they're just shifting back to food. But once it turns cold and those deer run down, you know, they've lost weight. They have to hit the food sources again. They need the minerals again. I've killed just as many big deer the last two weeks of the season as if I have, you know, November and October. And going off what Drew said about that, you know, Nate and Blake pitched on that new cherry and apple bomb product that they have released. And what we see around here in, in North Carolina in particular, the Orange Army is real around here. And even though we hunt a lot of private land, that doesn't mean that your neighbor next to you is not going to be hunting at the same time. And what is your neighbor usually feeding? The same exact thing you're feeding. They're feeding corn. And corn corn is king. Corn is corn is very nutritional. Corn is one of the most um, you know sought after um, protein sources for a deer because they just absolutely love it. But what happens is when you mix a bag with that apple or that cherry bomb product in those late season months, like Drew is discussing. It kind of lets makes your your setup stand out a bit more than what your neighboring property um, with him just using just normal corn itself. That makes sense, and that's actually a question that I was just thinking in my head. I was going to jot it down, and I'm I'm really glad you you mentioned it. Is you know I know you you kind of touched on it, but you know what is that kind of like the only you know quote unquote cocktail that you guys cook up for it, or do you, you know kind of what what do you usually uh work with with the trophy rocks it sounds like you're just not really just putting a, a rock out for a mineral site right you're kind of utilizing some other products too or do you just have different stations that are different yeah so when we're running our you know our spring summer minerals we use the 465 product and the trophy rock combined together and then as we progress through the year once we get you know to both season time frame we'll start feeding that cherry bomb throughout the end of the season you know but we'll continue using that rock the entire year um, but as we're talking about that late season, you know, December, everything's starting to lock back down. They're transitioning back to food and minerals, and they need to put protein back on, you know, get in as tight to a bedding area as possible without bumping them, put your food out closer, even closer to that, you know, make it where they have to travel the least amount possible in daylight hours where, you know, you can catch them slipping out the last 10 minutes before dark. Because realistically, you know, when you get late season, you don't see 
typically you don't see many deer until that that last 10 minutes you know or early in the morning right and you know it's, it's pretty neat too because just from experience me and, and, and drew can speak on this as well it, it's it's pretty cool because you got that there, there's a such thing people call as the october lull and over the past couple of years i mean what do you think we ain't seen october lull i, I haven't seen i don't it believe that. i don't believe no. it either not not what we've hunted i mean a lot of people are just saying that's it but you'll have what I'm going off here is that you'll have that last couple of weeks of October, and then you have the first couple of weeks of November, and that's when the rut's really on. And you'll watch a mature whitetail that is beefed up, and they will if they don't get harvested or if they don't get, um, you know, run down, hurt, whatever. You'll notice that slowly towards the first of December and on into December, you'll notice they'll lose a lot of that that muscle that they've gained and they'll lose a lot of their um, ability to stay active because, well, pretty much they're just so run down and wore out that they just don't have the energy or the nutrition to continue moving on what they were. So what does that mean then here? Well, that's where we've seen the, the cherry and the apple product really come and benefit here because that protein value, that nutritional value, that last couple months where people get burnt out on and kind of give up on, We've harvested a lot of mature deer coming to those protein sources to refill up for the winter months. And that is where a lot of people just, like I said, kind of tail off and just kind of give up. And that's another section of the season where you can come out on top if you just stick with it and uh, stay stay consistent with uh, not only your feeding source, but also your hunting in general. We got. So that's. Yeah, your brother killed a good deer this year, and that was the same thing. You guys hadn't had a picture of that deer the whole season, and you made it through the rut, and then all of a sudden, you know, where you guys are feeding protein at, all of a sudden this deer shows up, and he's like clockwork. Yep, and and, and a lot of people will kind of go against what we're saying here because a lot of people like to say, you know, well, you know, baiting is almost like cheating, and, and there's a lot more to um, using protein and mineral sources than just consider it baiting and throwing a spot out. There's a lot of scouting that goes into you still got to find the travel areas, the bedding areas, water sources. All that still comes into play uh, whenever you use a baiting or a protein source area. So it's not just literally going out there and throwing a sack of, of corn down and dropping 120 or 150 inch deer right there. It just doesn't work that way. And, you know, one thing going off that, too, and like Drew said, the, the deer my brother harvested this year, um, there we didn't have no history at all. I mean, he showed up. November, the week of November 17th, and uh, two weeks later, uh, he was harvested. And, and what's pretty cool is there was the week, the day before he was harvested, I, I got him daylighting on a food source with some cherry bomb from, uh, I mean, it was like three days in a row from morning and afternoon. He'd show up about an hour in the morning and show up about an hour in the afternoon. And this was all daylight. And he was simply coming there to just eat from being run down from the rut. And it's almost like it's ingrained in their mind that if they're going to survive, they've got to refill on protein sources to make it through the winter. Well, you know, and I'm glad you mentioned that because, you know, Whitetail Theories podcast, we jump down all kinds of rabbit holes. We are honest people. We're not uh, polished uh, bureaucrats or politicians or, you know, sellouts. We're real life hunters and we're out there. Um, it doesn't matter what state. But my point is um, I've always heard the argument with baiting and things. And, and I grew up in both worlds. So I grew up in the world of 
Uh, one side of my family was strictly public land. You know, we did the go out in the morning on a Saturday, go eat lunch at like 1130, come back at two, um, you know, that traditional public land grind. And then uh, my other side of the family was into nutrition. They had uh, beans out for the deer. We had a rule. We had a safe zone, you know, the first 500 yards up the mountain you could not take a deer it didn't matter how big how mature what time of day it was if if you were coming down the mountain you unloaded your gun once you got to that marker it was just a, a sanctuary that we had um, but we had the food plots there they had the bedding areas there so I got to grow up and see the the, the both sides and I tell you what I won't say one's over another um, because they're both a lot of hard work but I was humbled real quick on, you ain't just hunting over bait, I'm going to tell you right now. You have to work the land, you have to study the deer. These deer aren't dumb. I was literally in Ohio uh, this past year and a nice buck came out about 200 yards, looked right up at the stand. I wasn't even moving and I was pretty high up. Kind of looked around like he, th he thought I was there, maybe he didn't, wasn't sure, he, di he didn't really seem too... Uh, worried about it, which you can kind of get a sense from that from a mature deer. I mean, they'll back out or, or just disappear on you. But um, he knew something, you know, he knew the stand was there. He knew what time of year it was and he knew to stay out of bow range. And he literally would do circles around me all day. I'd catch him throughout the day um, at some point out of bow range. Um, but you know, my point is like, he didn't give it to us and we had, we were right near some beans um, you know, there was a few salt licks in the area uh, that my buddy was using. And, you know, the point is we just didn't sit up over the rock and say, OK, it's 830. He should be here soon because that's what the camera showed last week. You know, he you know, we definitely had to work for it and hunt him. Um, and I think a lot of people my my point with all that was I think a lot of people, they either don't understand it. Um, which will fall under product knowledge and information and things like that. Or, man, I mean, we can call a spade a spade. You know, at the end of the day, I think it boils down to a, a lot with jealousy. And I hope I don't get shot for saying that. But, you know, it, it, at the end of the day, it's when I see people treat other people like, well, that, 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 you know, that. 200 inch deer didn't count because i see a salt lick in the picture like come on man you think that salt if it was that easy we'd all go out and get a rock right now and we'd all start killing 200 inch deer tomorrow it definitely doesn't work that way uh there's millions of hunters in the united states i'm pretty sure if that was the trick to success one of us would have sniffed it out and got it there's way more work that's just a tool like anything else, like a good pair of camo or some good binoculars uh, or a weapon that works properly, an arrow that flies straight. It's just one of those tools that makes it easier to harvest the animal as far as once that trigger is actually pulled. It's just a little more effective on things and gets you a little closer, but it doesn't It doesn't by any means put you on top. And anyone that's ever hunted food plots, uh, managed land, uh, I mean, gosh, even we'll we'll even go as far as saying bait sites. Um, we all know that it, it doesn't it doesn't happen like that. It, as far as all the deer come out and say, "Hey, shoot me," um, <laughs> you know, you definitely have to put work in it and be at the right place at the right time and really put that time in. And one thing I like, and this will be my last point with it, 
that's why I wanted both of you guys to get on because at the end of the day, this isn't something where you guys joined uh, Redmond yesterday, you put your first trophy rock out yesterday morning and you're like, this product's amazing. You guys have been using it for years. You've already seen deer progressed over years. This isn't something that you know, you saw a Facebook ad yesterday and, and you wanted to get into it. Um, you know, these are real life stories and real life experiences of them helping uh, the deer population. And at the end of the day, man, even if people just want to put rocks and, and don't, I'm going to tell my grandpa, you should put some rocks in the sanctuary area so that uh, <laughs> when the deer are there, they, they have that extra nutrition now that I know a little bit more about it. Yeah. And, you know, just a, a, two things off of that too. And then one is, we're very blessed in our in our time period right now because we have so much uh, technology and sources to we can use in our hand to try to harvest mature whitetail nowadays. I mean, you think about it in just a sheer amount of probably ten years. If you go back back ten years from now, the amount of technology and mineral sources, cameras, stands, I mean, everything. There just there just wasn't that back in the day, and you did. And nowadays we do have that, and you know it's pretty impressive because the way that this stuff has evolved, it's it's like you, you get the the people that didn't hunt ten years ago, and everybody ten years ago thought this was a sport that well, I guess you could say rednecks would do, and now right. people are starting to realize that there is a lot. Of moving parts in this industry and people are wanting a, a share and an opportunity to be a part of it because they see not only the the value of it they also see how influential it is on just your everyday life i mean me and drew can both kind of go off this man we love to harvest a, a whitetail but in all honesty it's it boils down to more of just the fact of getting the opportunity to be out there and um, a lot of people don't get those opportunities and uh, we we do do our best, and we do um, work a lot with helping others that do not get a chance to go hunting. And uh, we also work a lot with um, even some disability groups, such as a group called the Wheel and Sports and Hunt out of Gold Hill, North Carolina. And these are for kids that are not as fortunate as we are, um, and they have disabilities. And we still get to try to take them hunting. And, you know, the cool thing is, is Redmond's on board with that kind of stuff as well. And anytime you see a company uh, like such as Redmond, uh, as big as they are, get on board with, with um, you know, charity events like that, it makes you want to, you know, work with those guys, and it makes you want to do business with those guys because, you know, at the end of the day, it's not all about them. It's about the actual hunting culture itself. Well, you know, you can always tell, to the people that have been – we won't even say in the industry. We'll just say people that have been around the outdoors and hunting for a long time, 10 plus years, um, you know, you know when someone's walking the walk and when someone's not. Uh, you know, you, you always can see that, uh, you know, we won't, obviously we won't jump on this and bash anyone, but we, we see it every single day on social media and anything else. And that's why I had mentioned it's so relieving to hear a company uh, like Redmond, that there's actually hunters in sales and marketing and operations. Uh, I couldn't tell you how many companies I, I have talked to before, and 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 I just and this is just personal preference, but I want a hunter selling me minerals. I want a hunter marketing and selling me product and educating me on product. I don't want. Uh, you know, someone that's maybe just a biologist and nothing else or, uh, you know, cr created something, an inventor or someone that thought it looked good on paper. I want a hunter that's been in the field. He's seen it. He's used it. I'll buy those products all day. 
all day. So Yeah, and one of our favorite parts about partnering with, with Redmond is, you know, some of these big-name companies, you try to get someone on the phone, and you can't get an answer for weeks from these guys. Cameron and said that, yep. Yeah, and talking with, you know, with Nate and these other guys on the team, you know, we can ask them a question and get immediate feedback, or we can call them up, you know, and they don't hesitate to answer the phone and talk to your average hunters like we are. No, that, that goes a long way with anything, and we, we all know people get busy and stuff, but, you know, it takes two seconds to even, you know, I'm on the phone all the time. I still, I'll shoot them a text while I'm on the phone. We have this nifty thing where when someone calls you, you can push a button, and it says, I'll call you back, or give me five, or you know, there, there's lots of, it's like you, like uh, both of you guys had said, technology's come a long way. And, um, you know, that goes for communication too. You know, you don't, you don't have to be on the phone for hours, but you know, it takes two seconds to, to answer a question, especially when that's something you do. And, and that just shows passion. That just shows passion for the product, passion for the outdoors and passion for, you know, customers and everything entailed with the business. Yeah, I 100% agree with that. That's that's spot on for sure. So, guys, um, I know we kind of touched on on the product part of it, and and you guys being ambassadors for it, um, great represent representatives for um, you know, it sounds like a, a multiple states. Um, so you know, you definitely have a good range of a lot of those states that are in that white tail. Uh, beltway there but i'm just kind of curious if both of you guys would just take a minute and, and kind of tell our listeners like uh as far as how did both of you guys get started into hunting in the hunting industry all right so um that's a that's a good story because uh you know i i had the fortunate ability of being kind of born into it so my father has um always been a a huge influence for me and he's always pretty much been my you know person to go to for anything hunting and he got me into it at an early age and you know one of the biggest things was is he he told me that as soon as um that he found out my mom told him that she was pregnant with me she said i'm buying him a, a lifetime hunting license whether he ends up hunting or not he's gonna have a lifetime license nice. and um you know right off the bat it's just it's something that you know not necessarily, I guess, your first animal you harvest, but the opportunities of going out in the woods and being with somebody that means a lot to you, that is something that you cannot make up. There's another feeling like it, and um, and he definitely gifted me to that, especially with him being involved as a licensed taxidermist as well. I mean, it's like I was always around him. He's always, you know, I get home from school or he's working on mountain deer or, or something of that sort. Um, so, you know, it's funny, though, because – as the years have gone on, you know, it kind of started out with the fact of him getting me into hunting. And that was my elementary school days. And then we moved to middle school where, you know, I moved from harvesting your small deer to my next deer being in the 120s. And after I harvested my first deer, which is pretty interesting, I had harvested a 100-inch deer for my first year, And I was very fortunate to heal that. And I told my dad after I harvested that deer, I said, it's got to be bigger. It's got to be bigger. It's got to be bigger. And ever since then, it's the same thing. I, I mean, I've, I went from a 100 inch to a, a 115, then I went to a 115 to like a 117. And every year, it's just a constant progression or staying in that same that same part because, um, you know, Deacon Drew can attest to this as well. We were sitting in this position last year, and me and him are both successful with this, and the rest of the guys are part of this team, uh, Tim, Ryan which my brother and, and my father, which is Todd, I mean, we, we have 
been very fortunate to harvest a lot of deer. And then all of a sudden, it's like this system has kind of exploded. I mean, the, the, the possibilities that's coming up for us this year with these properties, I mean, it, it's like there's an, a door just waiting to be open for us for what could happen. And the cool thing is, too, is that we're involving other people. And, and Drew can attest to this. we got quite a few people that hunt these properties that we um, are allowed to hunt. And, you know, it started out as, we got about 500 acres, 500 acres here in North Carolina. And then next thing you know, hey, we got our 500 acres in another state and then another state and then another state. And then well, we a farmer wants us to hunt this many acres. And having too much land is always a good thing. And it's been, well, we have a network with guys. And um, I guess to kind of, you know, tie a bow on my, my point of view of this is I've met so many people in this industry because of this. And these people are the people that I will constantly stay in contact with until, you know, I'm long gone because these guys live and breathe the whitetail deer like I do. And that's kind of what messes me and Drew together a lot doing this together because, man, it's just something that never stops clicking. After you harvest your first whitetail deer, um, you know, with my father getting me involved in it, and then now me and Drew hunting together all the time, it, it's gotten to be the point where it just it's an addiction that will not go away. No, especially growing up with a dad that bought you a lifetime license. I mean, you were destined to either love it or not. And it's, it's awesome that you went, uh, you know, you ended up loving it. And, and I love hearing that story. And, you know, I always, you know, I always revert back to passion. You know, you can tell when someone's, uh, you know, in it for the right reasons and when someone's not. And it's nice to hear that passion and, and love for it. And, and you're right, land, is it a commodity where I tell people all the time, if there was one thing I wish I learned in high school that I know now, it was buy, buy, buy as much land as humanly possible. It doesn't matter if it's one acre, 500 acres, 5,000 acres, you know, get that land um, because it doesn't matter how much you have at the end of the day, you can always do something on it for hunting, conservation, uh, even just, like you said, taking someone out, if you got a new hunter, you want to teach them some ropes, you know, you got some turkeys or hogs on the property, really get, get dialed in for, uh, you know, for those mature whitetails, it's a, a lot that can come with it. Uh, but Drew, what about you? How did you uh, get into hunting? So very similar. Um, my dad's into it as well. You know, I grew up, same story, kind of lifetime license deal. And, you know, it's, the best, the best thing about the hunting community is everyone shares this passion. You know, you can, you can hunt by yourself, but when you come out, you still have all your friends and family to talk about and tell the story that you experienced. And it's like, you know, it's like you experienced it yourself. Um, I killed my first year when I was five and then transitioned to bow hunting at nine. My dad started making me shoot a traditional style bow, you know, no sight, no release. And somehow I got lucky and hit the first one I shot at. And it took several years after that of, wasted muzzy brawlheads for a long time uh, <laughs> so i hit another one but but no it gets you hooked you know you get that experience and spend it with your family and friends and you can't beat it i mean it's it's a passion i'm just curious do you still use muzzy no not anymore oh i was gonna we, say we actually we actually have a good discount with them so if you ever have to revert back or teach your kid and start them off <laughs> there you go yeah I, once i mean when i started at nine i was shooting a you know, a 40 pound bow and a 75 grain brawlhead, just trying to get as much penetration as possible. So it was, you know, fixed blade trying to stick something in, you know, past the shoulder blade at least. Now I know it sounds like both of you guys are pretty hardcore into, into bow 
uh, whitetail. Uh, Drew, have you transitioned from longbow to to regular or? Yes, yes. So that was that kind of got me I'm started. Sorry, longbow to, to compound. Yes, yes. Yeah, so that kind of got me started, and it's it's still fun to shoot a recurve, you know, every once in a while now. But but no, it's use the tools the way you can. If I had a a big gear out at 50, 60 yards, you know, I feel much more confident being able to put a pin on and yeah. squeeze off rather than. Yeah, the um, the elite bows and the uh, bigger arrows have really come a long ways to help us out with that, and we have really, really enjoyed working with both of them. And uh, and then, like Drew says, with the muzzy broadheads, um, you know, we've we've really went from muzzy now to where we, we you know we shoot grim reapers now, and I mean. It, if nobody on here is familiar with the Grim Reaper Broadhead, I would highly suggest you check them out because those guys, man, there ain't nothing like their whitetail specials. Um, you literally can't watch them drop from, from your tree stand. So what? tell me, uh, we'll start with you, Cameron, and then we'll do Drew. Uh, Cameron, tell the uh, listeners what's your setup look like as far as your bow and your arrows. I know you kind of touched on it, but just a, a quick little cliff notes on what you're shooting um, at this point. Yeah, so currently I shoot an Elite Energy 35. It's an older 2016 flagship bow from Elite, um, and that bow has progressed with me for a long time. Um, you know, I bought a brand new, and it's been a great bow for me. And this year I will be transitioning over to Elite Envision. Um, and that bow in general, uh, it's pretty neat. It's a 31 axle axle, but that bow actually is designed to shoot like a 35 axle to axle bow. And I, I quite frankly, I enjoy um, the heck out of it just because I'm, I'm a very tall guy. And, and I've talked to you, Justin, we and you are about the same, you know, stature was six foot four and about the same weight as well around the 250 range. And I have a huge wingspan and, you know, nice. this wingspan uh, has made me be able to shoot that 35 very well. But this 31 shoots like a 35, but with a shorter axle axle. Um, Sight wise, uh, I shoot custom bow equipment. Um uh, for sights, and then I also use um, Victory Arrow Archery, and I, I like the VAP uh, arrows. Them things are absolutely bone crushing. And there's a couple videos on their website where they held up a elk femur, and that um, VAP went through the elk femur, which is very impressive for a, a, a carbon arrow. And then um, broadhead wise, like I said, I'm a, a Grim Reaper Whitetail um, Razor Cut SS guy. I mean, the broadheads, the two inch diameter cut is absolutely wicked for a broadhead. And what about you, Drew? What are you rocking right now? So, as Cameron said, he's a tall guy. He shoots the elite. I'm shorter. I shoot a Matthews BXR 28. Um, I hunt a lot of a climber, so that gives me the room to be able to, you know, draw with the top piece on your climber and not get in the way. Uh, same victory arrows as well, and I shoot some Swacker, some Grim Reaper. Just depends really on what I'm hunting. Um, yeah, I find a little bit different penetration depending on which broadhead you're shooting. Which, if I'm hunting in Ohio or if I'm hunting in North Carolina, you're hunting a 275 pound deer or you're hunting a 185 pound deer. Um, I think we can both say though, um, arrow wise and broadhead wise, we're kinetic energy dudes. Uh, speed's awesome, but we like some kinetic energy yeah. depending on. Uh, regardless of broad head of the arrow. Yeah. No, I, I feel that. I, I like a I like a solid punch too. Um so we're we got the setups here. That was something I was really curious with, especially with you guys hitting so many different states, bow honey, mature whitetail. Um but tell me what what are you guys looking like for this season? Uh anything crazy planned? Um, you know, I know you mentioned a few, uh possibly Ohio or I'm sorry, uh possibly Iowa you said, right? 
Yes, yeah, so I was still in the works. Um, I mean, mainly you just let the trail cameras speak for themselves. Um, save your save the vacation days as long as possible and see how that goes. Um, you know, Kentucky bow season. The glory thing about that is it opens up first Saturday of September, and it's you know two weeks before here in North Carolina and three weeks before or four weeks before Ohio. So if you are getting a big deer on camera, you know, you have one place you can go and hunt at that point. So that works out well for us. So we'll keep an eye on that. You know, once we start getting, you know, bone pictures in June, July and start actually being able to target a deer for the season. Um, but typically, you know, in Ohio, opening day is kind of tough. You know, you're into September, you're starting to hit that, what they would call the October lull. Um, I typically don't like to start hunting Ohio until that last week of October when they're starting to hit the scrapes. So and uh, that's that's kind of funny because that'll be probably a podcast that maybe we can do here um, later on. But trail cameras have been the thing, um, especially for us over the past couple of years. I mean, the pattering of deer, if you can get one patterned, it might as well be walking dead because you're going to get a opportunity. I'm not going to say that you're doing a harvest, but it will provide you with an opportunity. And um, off of Drew's point, that has really, really benefited us in all the states we hunt over the past couple of years. Yeah, cell cameras are the best invention ever made. I mean, especially for us living out of state and not knowing which state to go hunt, when to go hunt. I mean, I'll be laying in bed sometimes at 10 o'clock at night and just pull up the app and see, you know, what's what's going on at the scrapes in Ohio. You know, it's that's the at least, you know, confidently when you go into your stand set and you haven't checked your camera in weeks that. There is a shooter in the area. Yeah, and especially with Spartan helping us out with that. I mean, the Spartan camera has been the absolute best thing that could have happened for us in the past couple years. And, um, you know, the results don't lie with what's what's been portrayed and what has helped us out because, uh, you know, again, consistency is key. And uh, with the minerals and using the, the Redmond uh, Hunt Trophy Rocks with the Spartan cameras, I mean, it's almost like um, you're just going ahead and, and – and penciling in a, a good season coming up. I mean, it, it's, it's really helped us out a lot. You know, I just had Austin, I know we had talked about it with Masio Gamekeepers on, and he said the same, well, very similar to what you said with, with the, uh, with the Spartan cameras, the, just the game changing, you know, cell camera. And two, you know, I, I look at a, I'm always a glass half full kind of guy and I almost look at it to me, uh, a lot of people can always say you're always going to have your uh, quote unquote bow gun conversation, but at the end of the day, you know, honestly, it's a, it's a good thing for conservation because think about how much stress you put on that deer if you're there every single day after work or every single morning before work. You know, now you can literally look at a camera, and the only thing that would upset it is if it noticed that camera. But if you have it obviously in the same place for you know some consistency but you know it almost looks good for conservation too because you're putting less stress on the animal uh he's going to be able to um you know consummate possibly a little bit better when he's not completely stressed out uh you know in worrying about pressure and and are there people here i mean you got a guy going every day after work i used to be the worst at it i'd get off work and you know for turkeys it's one thing from for mature white-tailed deer it's a whole different whole different animal you can't you can't be in that spot stinking it up every single day um so cameras have definitely i think have have probably put the stress levels down on on animals and and give us a lot better chance than uh you know we've we've had in the past yep and i think this is kind of going off on a tangent but one of the biggest stressors on trail cameras is other than your mineral licks that to leave them on scrapes there's certain scrapes that deer will hit all year long whether it be in the spring summer um, they have those certain 
funnels and lifting branches that, that, that they will use as their travel patterns. Yeah, I think you can do so. I mean, even even we could even go down more rabbit holes as to say, you know, the thing about a trail camera is, okay, uh, did you know how big your predator population was before? Uh, how do you know you don't have 20 coons sitting outside of it one night? You know, I know he mentioned that, you know, Salt Lake isn't really big with them, but what if you had some uh, something mixed such as corn or something? Well, they do love corn. So, uh, you know, how, how do you know really what's going on with your property? Uh, there's no way unless you're sitting out there in the dark that you know what the predator population and the uh, the raccoon population and the possum population is doing uh, to your uh to your land, you know, as far as taking resources away and, and, uh, you know, messing up turkey populations and, and things like that. So I'm a, I've always been a, a huge, uh, fan of trail cameras from the minute I got my first one, which was a Bushnell, uh, gosh, I think in the, in the two thousands. And, and I tell you what, I, I'm not as old as having to use the battery hooked up to a tree. I remember back in the day, they said they used to have like a, almost like a battery. Like a battery yeah, and I would say, you know, we've already touched on this a little bit, but one of the worst parts about trail cameras is people trying to check them too often. Ah, that's and, a point. And they will end up, you know, they can bump it out of their spots and, you know, it can ruin it for extended periods of time. What would you guys say, just with your experience of having to check cameras, let's just say you're in North Carolina, you're in your state, how often do you usually check a camera? Let's just say a hot camera. So spring, summertime, when we're running mineral licks, I'm not going to look at it every two months. Um, and then once we get in the season, about if we got a cell camera, you know, we'll leave it as long as possible. If you have solar panels on it, leave it the whole season. Um, but, you know, when you get to that critical period of trying to decide where the deer's staging at, which scrapes are you hitting, then every two weeks-ish. Okay, awesome. And I tell you what, like Cameron had said, we're definitely going to get you guys on another podcast. Um, I think we could easily do um, a ton of, uh, we won't call them mini segments because I guarantee they'll go an hour, especially with, you know, it's so hard to put so much information into, you know, just an hour, hour and a half, two hours. Um, so we'll definitely have you guys on next and, and we can kind of just follow the train of what's going on as far as getting cameras out there, uh, how your uh, mineral sites are looking throughout the summer, and, and we'll definitely keep the listeners updated so that not only do they get to hear part one and part two uh, of using mineral sites um, and helping contribute to harvesting, you know, making you a little more successful um, with your white-tailed deer, but um, they'll get to kind of see like a, a timeline of, okay, they can take this episode, then we'll, we'll talk again in, in, into spring and summer, um, and then we'll hopefully be able to slide one in right before Bo, um, and you guys will have whatever state you're going to hit up first in lock. Yeah, absolutely. Like I said, we're really looking forward to getting the game plan together and seeing what kind of horns we have for this season to target. Yeah, and if y'all you have you know anybody on this podcast or have any questions feel free to reach out to me or drew um you have to help you out with uh any questions you may have on either our setups or trophy rock in general or anything else um we always love to talk hunting that's for sure yeah i'll definitely put y'all's information on the show notes so that our listeners can check it out but i did have one question i kind of wanted uh to end with here um it's one of those rabbit hole questions, but this is the White Tail Theories podcast. If you guys had to choose, okay, and hopefully nobody gets shot for this, if you guys had to choose right now, which state is your favorite to hunt out of the ones you mentioned? Do you have a favorite? I'm going to go Ohio, but 
don't hold me to it. <laughs> we'll I don't say, know where I'll be at. We'll, we'll say tw- let's say 2022. We'll narrow it down. <laughs> oh, okay, mine's Kentucky then. <laughs> Kentucky and Ohio. They're completely different. Kentucky. Well, it depends on what region you're in as well. So we're in Western Kentucky, and it's mainly ag land. So you have 500 acres of crop field, then you have a 10 acre block of woods. You know, and it's you just have to travel until you find that certain deer and. I think hunting Western Kentucky is a lot like hunting the Midwest where you have those big open areas and it's, it's more of trying to locate the deer you're hunting rather than, you know, trying to pattern one. Um, whereas Ohio it's massive blocks of woods, you know, a lot of public land in the areas, but it's, you know, 800, 900 acres of timber and it's been there, find the saddles, find the ridges, find the oaks that are dropping, find the scrapes. Uh, it's just different styles of hunting in my opinion. Yeah, for sure. And and I always like to ask that question because believe it or not, it's rare that I actually get the same answer every time. It it never happens. Actually, you guys are probably the first people to say Kentucky. I've gotten Ohio a few times, but it definitely ranges it. And that tells me two things. That tells me that there's good hunting all throughout the U.S. Uh, if you if you put the work into it. Um, and also there's opportunities for people that do want to go. Uh, you know, service side we have a a hunt link program where you know guys can you know I say guys but just anyone in the outdoors, guys, girls, um, can link up and, and hunt other states. And it's a, it's a great opportunity to save money um, and to network and, and do what we've all talked about, which is bumping shoulders uh, and communicating with each other and, and really driving home that culture. Um, but I, I, I enjoy hearing the Kentucky one because that one's definitely a first for me. Kentucky is a sleeper state. It really is. And the season comes in earlier. So if it's on someone's bucket list to kill a velvet deer, that's, I would say Kentucky, as far as state-wise goes, that's your best opportunity to kill a mature deer in velvet out of anywhere in the United States. I mean, there's some, there's some sleeper states, you know, I, I told people all the time and, and to the crazy thing about some states is you'll have a state like, like Florida, for example, we're not known for good deer. This year was probably the best year and they all had black antlers. You know, we have those dark antler deer. So, you know, for Florida standards, there was some very mature uh, bucks that were taken this year. Um, and then I honestly thought that from what I saw just with my networking circle, it seemed like the northern states didn't have like a crazy, crazy year. But maybe that's just the way that uh, from the people that I see and stuff. But I like, too, that like nothing's set in stone. You know, like maybe one state might be fire one season and then the next year season it's just things aren't lining up. So, um, you know, I definitely always encourage everyone like these guys do get out there. Uh, you, you don't need to be uh, rich or have a trust fund or uh, have four jobs to, to do these trips. Um, if you like you said, Drew, if you put some vacation time back, do your homework, uh, whether it's uh, e-scouting. Uh, putting cameras in certain places, getting leases, uh, getting out there on public areas uh, in the summer to maybe do some camping and hiking to see if that's somewhere you'd like to go. Uh, there's lots of opportunities. It's just you got to work a little bit harder. The opportunities are always going to be there. It's just a matter of what are you going to do with those opportunities. Yeah, download Hunt Stand, download Onyx, and go knock on a door. I mean, yeah. and the biggest thing is when you start knocking on these doors, don't overlook those little transition areas. I mean, most people... When they look on property information, they target the big bedding area or the big field that you, that you see deer in from the road. But don't overlook the don't overlook the ten acres behind it where the deer are funneling through. You know, getting back to their bedding area. More acres always mean more better. That's a that's a real good point. 
Uh, I like that. And uh, I'm glad I had you guys on. Um, did you guys have anything else for our listeners um, as far as this segment goes? Um, I know we kind of touched on Redman and a little bit of you, uh, who you guys are. Um, I know the members have been seeing y'all um, a lot frequently. So they kind of have a better sense of, of who y'all are and, and uh, you know what's planned for this season. But do you guys have any takeaways that maybe I missed or that you'd like to touch on? No, I think we pretty much covered it all. I mean, we could always do another segment if need to be, if there's enough interest in it. I mean, we could always, you know, again, talk about something else. I mean, I know camera, cameras would be something that would be beneficial as well. We could always have a debate podcast on the different rules and regulations in the new states on oh, baiting. Man. Let's, let's not go there. We, we could. Get there. People really- <laughs> we could. I'll tell you what, there's some crazy stuff I've been seeing happening with rules changing for – the better, and then for the not so better. <laughs> Getting some heated discussions with people on that very quickly. We just now, uh, well, the great thing about a podcast is uh, it's just us three. So, well, at the, in this situation, so we don't have to worry about too much crazy uh, craziness coming through, even though everyone is entitled to their opinions. But uh, we actually just got two more birds that we can take in Florida. It's up to four, so you can do two in the fall, two in the spring. But that something that changes, you used to be able to take a hen in the fall. Can't take hens no more. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, that's like here, you know, you get two tags. And, uh, you know, it's pretty funny because Drew actually killed a bigger hen last weekend. Oh. I don't hate on the hen. It's frowned upon by a lot of people. But, yeah, I, I shot a hen. It's at a be- a- I mean, it's a bearded hen. I mean, they- almost, yeah. Had almost a ten inch beard, so Oh yeah. That she she had to go, man. Her time her time is has come. I, I have not posted a picture of that one because I know it's frowned upon by many serious turkey guys, yeah. but but I, yeah, well, that I'll was... tell you what, man, it might be a northern thing, but down here it's considered uh it'd be like shooting uh well, I mean I guess that's anywhere, like the piebalds and things like that. Uh, hopefully I said that right. We don't have a lot of them down here, but you know, at the end of the day, man, I look at it like this. It's legal. It's ethical. You respected nature. You're, the, the law says bearded turkeys. It doesn't say no bearded hens or, you know, no, gobblers yeah, without beard. It says bearded turkey. Bone. So I'm going to trust a biologist. Uh, you know, I'm, I, we'll, we'll say that to a point. I'm going to somewhat trust a biologist. Hopefully there's no politics involved. But, I mean, there ain't nothing to be ashamed of, man. You took something that... A lot of people, I mean, for all you know, she probably wasn't even laying eggs. You, you have no clue what, what that, I mean, it's, it's a higher testosterone that causes that, right? Yeah, it's 2022. I guess you never know what that hen was thinking. <laughs> hey, she's right on, she's right on board with the rest of the world, so. That's what our time Well, we'll definitely jump on, a, on another, uh, another one at some point in time, but uh, guys, I really appreciate you guys jumping on. Um, I can't wait to get this out. It's packed full of information, real life experiences, um, and uh, we'll definitely be doing it again soon. Sounds good. We appreciate it. Yeah, man. Sounds like a plan. Thank you for having us. All right. And last thing, I completely forgot this. Uh, for the people that do want to reach out to you guys, just throw up uh, what are your socials, uh, email, or, or the best way that people can reach you if they have any questions or they're looking for, uh, you know, some products or, you know, things like that. Yeah. So my simplest one would probably be my uh, hunting page on Instagram, which would be at Balcom, B A U C O M, hunting. And then uh, just my simple Facebook page, Cameron Balkan, but I'm pretty active on the server side page. So, um, you know, I'm 
content on there if y'all want to just you know reach out to me from there as well yeah and then mine would be instagram at drew little underscore all right awesome and drew i'll make sure i send you an invite too so you can get on the uh on the private page and we can get you on there too um but guys thanks again and uh y'all are listening to whitetail theories podcast <laughs>